Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadle, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris, how are you? All right, Rachel, how's it going? It's going good. Uh, so what's new? What's new over there in Virginia? Uh, oh, so much, so much. Uh, but something that's been on my mind recently, Rachel, is so once upon a time, I got to write a book with my colleague, Sally Norton Dar. And the name of this book was called The Practical and Fun Guide to Assistive Technology in Public Schools. And it has this orange cover and everyone knew it as the, in, in AT land as, uh, you know, the book with the orange cover. You know, they didn't know who Sally and Chris were. They knew about this book. And there's this aspect of the book that um, I've been thinking about lately. And I, you know, picked up and kind of looked at, looked, looked through it again. And like we, we wrote about this one particular part that I think is something that I'd like to talk about today, if it's okay. Rachel. I would love to talk about it. Yeah. So th- again, this is something I thought about years ago and drafted it up and Sally and I re- you know, reworked it and, and eventually got it published in the, in the book. But it's this aspect of speech therapy and how much speech therapy costs or really any therapy costs versus the cost of a device. So do you have your phone there with you, Rachel? Just curious. Yes. Could you, could you open up the calendar and let's do some math here, right here on the podcast. Okay. What would you say an average speech therapy per hour, you know, session would cost? I mean, not what you're making, what you, charge, but just an average, like if you had to guess, or maybe a, like a speech therapist that works in a school, how much do you think it costs per session? For how long? For an hour? Yeah, just for an hour session. Um, I don't know, $80, $90? $80, All right, let's, let's, let's say 90 Let's go high. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so $90, per, we didn't, this would make it easy. Let's say 100 Let's say 100 I feel like that's, that's totally reasonable. That's 100 So if it's $100 per hour session, that's $50 per half hour session, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and many sessions are twice a week, would you say? Yeah. So, so you're, for, to serve a student, um, an individual student, it's $100 a week, maybe. Does that sound about right? Well, 100 to 200 if it's two sessions, right? Oh, wait. If it's, yeah, if it's two hour sessions. But if it's a half hour session, like I picture gotcha. most, okay. most a half 30. hour in a school. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. So $100 a week, maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some students have many more than that, right? And some students have less. And I remember many years ago, one of my administrators, when, uh, when I was serving as a speech therapist in the school, and a parent was coming and saying, I think we need to raise the time by 30 minutes. Has that ever happened to you? Like, have you ever had conversations with parents? Or like, we need more speech therapy time. That's the conversation I have with all parents all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, and my, I was thinking, I don't really think we need to do this. And, and to be fair, I think in the back of my mind was like, how am I going to fit this into my schedule? Right. But even just looking at the needs of the student way back then, I was thinking, I don't really think this, this, just, this justifies it. Right. Like, I don't think there's a need here. Um, and my administrator at the time, what she said is she's like, Chris, do we really want to fight about a half hour more a week? You know? And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like maybe this isn't my hill to die on a half hour more a week. But let's do the math, if, if that's okay, hence the, the calculator. So there's 40 weeks in a school year about. So on a, a, if it's at $100 a week for 40 weeks, then how much does that cost the school district? $4,000. That's $4,000. And this administrator was willing to tack on an extra half hour a week with really not even thinking about it. More like, 
do you want to fight with the parents? Then maybe you just give them the extra half hour a week, right? Not, not like it's a collaborative decision. So how much more is that on top of 4000 That's an extra $2,000. So you're talking about a $2,000 increase, sort of just because the thought is that speech therapy is free, you know, meaning you go, it's at no cost to the parents, right? They're not really paying in a public school such situation. Uh, obviously, private situation is different. But, um, and we have, we have no compunction at all about saying, okay, here's an extra half hour, right? I mean, some people do, don't get me wrong. But in this particular case, it, there wasn't any. Like, what's, a, what's an extra half hour, right? Well, an extra half hour equates to $2,000. And many administrators, I think, um, uh, assistant principals, principals, uh, district ad admin, and maybe speech therapists themselves, let's not just say admin, see no problem at all providing an extra 30 minutes of speech therapy, right? Am I right? No, I would agree with that. Yet, how much would you, so, okay, so we, we have that established. How much would you say it costs to provide a, an iPad with a communication app? Hmm. Well, let's see. What's what's the, what's the cost of a new iPad now? Like five or six hundred dollars? Yeah, let's say five hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, most maybe most, high, but yeah, most speech generating apps are what like two fifty. Yeah, if you get them on sale, if you get them in, in October or April when they go on sale, you're talking one hundred and fifty. And I'm certain I, I know there's developers that are listening like, what? My app's not two fifty. My app's only yeah. fifty dollars. I know. We know. Um, <laughs> we know everybody. Don't worry. <laughs> Cool your jets. <laughs> I'm just talking generalities mm. here. But so if we look at generalities, so how much is it cost? What's, a, what's a, a robust language system plus an iPad? What are we talking? 500 plus, uh, would you say 150, 250? So yeah. we're talking 800? Is that, that's a little high, 750 to 800? Yeah, that's what I would say. So think about that. How much time is spent about, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, is how much time is spent with so, no, the selection of a device absolutely needs to, you need to take all the time you need to take to make sure you're choosing what's right. But sometimes I feel like that is a lot more scrutinized, uh, a lot more, um, if you think back of the Dana Nieder uh, blog post that we've talked about in the past about gatekeepers when we had Dana Nieder on as a, as a guest on the podcast, um, where there's some people that feel like they need to protect the, the investment, you know, of $800. Yet, comparison-wise, the services seem to just be so, I don't know, easy to give away. And I, I just wanted to explore that with you a little bit and talk about that. Well, why do you think that might be? Um, so I think that when you're sitting in an IEP and you're talking about, you know, 30 minutes, 30 minutes doesn't seem like a, a long time, right? It doesn't seem like a big deal. It's like, oh, 30 minutes. So I think that most people aren't really breaking down the numbers in the way that we just did. Um, I think when it comes to technology, there's this idea that it's super expensive. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, like a brand new flashy iPad with a brand new app, you know, that's it's just $800. Like, exactly. Um, so I think that's probably part of this is that, you know, it's, it's just perception, right? Yeah. I mean, it's $800, but it's a one-time purchase usually, right? That will serve a student for maybe five years. And what we were talking about as far as speech therapy, adding an extra half hour is $2,000 
a year. So that means if for the next five years, you're talking, what's five times two, $10,000 that you are, that you've just, you know, and obviously every year you're, you're readjusting and you're having conversations. I'm again, speaking in generalities here, but I just wanted to call that that reality into light because it's something that is not just specific to AAC. It happens with assistive technology too. I mean, with, with the more global term of assistive technology that people get hyper-focused on protecting or choosing and, and spending a lot of, I don't know, effort to protect this investment of $800 as compared to protecting the investment of the the human hours that are being spent. You know, Um, think about how many hours are spent choosing an AAC device compared to uh, the actual cost of the device, right? I mean, if you think about how much the speech therapist is getting paid to participating in whatever the assessment might look like to you or whatever the consideration process might look like to you, think about any related service staff, you think about the administrators might be involved, think about all the dollars that are being spent in that arena and it, it, it completely dwarfs the amount that the that the iPad is. So I just want to call that to to people's attention because I feel like so much time and money is spent on protecting that $800 when it really should be spent on uh, implementation. Don't think of yourself as you don't have to be a gatekeeper for $800. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we want to be good stewards of our resources. We do want to be, you know, not just throwing $800 out the window. I just want to illustrate that there is this mentality that that spending money on a thing is much more expensive than spending, and it's not. It's much more expensive to be thinking about the, the human hours involved. And I also think just piggybacking off of that, the human hours need to be used wisely. And I feel like the wisest way to use those human hours is by working with communication partners, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, sure, a child might get 30 extra minutes a week, But if that 30 extra minutes is spent in a therapy room with just the clinician, you know, how, how wisely is that money being spent? And so I think that that just goes alongside of really supporting a coaching model and getting in the classroom and working alongside of teachers and other clinicians um, just to make the most of the resources. Yeah, well, that's a whole nother aspect. So if you take the technology out of it and you're still thinking about that 30 minutes a week that equals $2,000 a year, then where where do you want to spend that $2,000? Is it in a pullout setting where a student is is coming to a room by themselves uh, listening to a speech therapist or working with a speech therapist? Or do you want that speech therapist integrating into a classroom, working with the peers, working with the teaching assistants, working with the parents, if possible, uh, work in a in a more generalized setting and working with all of those other people, not necessarily working directly with the student, it might be a better use of that time. And certainly when you're putting dollars behind it, money. Yeah. And it just kind of also piggybacks on the assessment model, right? We talk about this so much on this podcast. You and I feel very strongly. Um, You know, we spend so many hours on these assessments, so many hours. And then, you know, clinicians have to write up 20 page reports about their findings. And I'm not saying, you know, we don't need to do thorough assessments because I definitely think we do. But what's happening is we're doing all these thorough assessments and then we're not implementing. You know, we're just kind of putting the device in a child's lap and they're not supported. The communication partners aren't supported. The parents aren't supported. So it's just, it's tricky because we need to, 
we need to figure out a, a better system um, where implementation is at the top of our priority list. Yes. Well, and what we're really talking about is consideration, right? And selection. And and many times uh, the assessments are, we have enough information from assessments that have already been done to, to maybe make a good decision about what uh, we want to implement. And now we can spend the amount of hours and the amount of money behind those hours becomes less under the uh, consideration and selection umbrella. And we can put that dollar and those dollars and that hours behind the implementation and really training people and coaching people along how, th- how they should do that. And all of that money, all of that, this is really the point I want to make is way more significant than the cost of a device. Uh, in most cases, obviously there are some more expensive devices, but in, in most cases, uh, certainly the students um, that I'm familiar with that, that we most prevalent, we are using an iPad with a, with an AAC app. That is an AAC device that costs $800 and it's a one-time purchase. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of a story actually that I can share when I was in Philadelphia, I was working and doing early intervention and preschool, three, four, and five-year-olds. And one of the biggest problems I had with the organization that I was working with, um, and it was state-funded, so it was all you know free to parents, was we didn't have a good exit plan for students. And so what I would see, and especially with preschool populations, you oftentimes see pretty significant progress. Um, you know, sometimes you pick up a child when they're three, and by the time they're four, They've, you know, they've caught up, you know, they were just a little bit language delayed and now they're doing great. But what would happen is we would pull kids in three and then they would just sit on clinicians caseloads, right? And they would Mm -hmm. sit for what I would consider longer than they needed to. We didn't have a clear process for checking in. Um, And so it was just like this thing where so many of the clinicians and other speech therapists that I would talk to would be like, yeah, he's on my caseload. I don't think he really needs speech anymore. But like the process to go through and, you know, exit a student was so unclear that it was just easier for these very busy clinicians. You know, they had 50, 60 kids on their caseload to just like keep going to the session, keep working with the child. And, you know, that's all fine and good, except we had three to 400 kids on a wait list waiting for services. And so it was just so... I had such strong feelings towards it that it just, it would make my blood boil, honestly. Cause I would, I would then, you know, pick up a student that was maybe on a wait list for a year. They would be completely nonverbal, no words. And I think to myself, you know, even kids on my caseload that for whatever reason, you know, mom really still wanted services and all these things, even though it was against my, you know, clinical judgment, I felt like, you know, look, they're age appropriate at this point, but it was just kind of all this red tape to actually exit students. Um, And so anyway, it just reminds me of that because I felt like it was such a misallocation of resources. Yeah. Like I said, there's a, the phrase being a good steward of your resources. And if a process is in the way and it's actually not a good way, I mean, look at, again, I'm going to keep tying this whole banter back to money, right? Think how much money was spent, let alone the kids that are on the wait list, but think about how much money is spent uh, on a wasted process, you know, something that needs tweaking, right? Yeah, exactly. And it just, it was so frustrating to me and I felt so bad for, you know, kids that were sitting on that wait list because we didn't have good processes in place to actually determine whether or not children still met eligibility. Yeah. There's a cartoon that I meant, I once saw where it's, um, like a, uh, 
it's a bunch of cave people and they're pushing a square wheel and they're trying to push it right and there's other people come along these other cavemen come along and they've got a um a wheel and they're like mm, like pointing to this like what if we did it this way and like sorry we're too busy pushing this to possibly look at your idea right and it's the same same concept uh, we're too busy doing this process to actually stop and rethink one, how much money this process is costing us, but two, how we could possibly redesign it to save us money, make it more efficient, and make it better for the for the students and us, really, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. it's just there's, there's unfortunately with so many kids in need, not enough therapists, um, and these huge organizations responsible for a lot, right? The organization I worked for, I think we serviced four or 5,000 kids in Philadelphia. Between the ages of three, and five. So it was like, we had a lot of kids that we had to, you know, take care of. Um, I just think that it's just really hard to get those types of processes in place because, you know, there's just a huge demand. There's constant turnover of, you know, managers and supervisors and, you know, leaders um, within the organization. And so it's just, it's a challenge. Yeah, but the challenge is there for us to to tackle it, right? I mean, the someone has to do it. So uh, if there's a process that exists for for you out there that is uh, that you notice is like this is not working, it's not efficient, then it's on you uh, to help come up with a solution, you know, and, and keep trying until you until you figure out what that solution might be. And recognize again, I'm going to keep pulling us back to this: is that those human hours cost money, uh, and they cost way more money than any technology solution. So recognize that as your most uh, expensive resource and make sure you're using that to the best ability as possible. And I think it's also good for clinicians to think about the services, the minutes they offer as, you know, in a financial way, right? Because it's not just about how much we get paid, right? It's like there's so much more cost involved. And for someone who has their own business, like I understand that like, you know, to the nth degree, there's, you know, all types of benefits you have to provide and, you know, human resources and all of these things go into just one person doing one thing. And so it's just, it's way more expensive than, you know, your, your paycheck shows even. Mm -hmm. Time equals money. That, that has never changed. But sometimes in education, that we that gets lost because in public education, it's free to the public, right? So that sometimes gets, um, I don't know, diluted in some way. And that's why uh, I love that we have a podcast that we can bring it out and, and kind of take that thing and drag it into the light and be like, look, this costs money and it costs the, the services cost a lot more money than the thing. So don't spend a lot of time protecting the thing. Spend a lot of time protecting the services. Yeah. And also, you know, just, I think it's also a good reminder for parents too, because when I was working, you know, I was doing, I was going in home a lot of times and I would show up and parents weren't home. Parents didn't answer the door, like all these things. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm getting paid to come here and stand on this doorstep and knock. And now, you know, I have an hour where you're scheduled in and you're not here. And so it was just like, that was also another frustrating thing to me that, you know, my time wasn't valued, right? Because in, and at some level, you know, I, I'm not saying at all that parents and families don't deserve state funded resources like speech therapy and all the things that they need for their child, because I absolutely, you know, believe that is important. But I just, I also think whenever you give something away for free, 
it's not valued as much. You know, mm-hmm. if those families were paying, regardless if I came or not, you know, they would be there. They would be there if they had to pay. So, so listeners, that's why we're going to start charging two ninety nine per podcast episode. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is funny. This is an interesting conversation that we had today. I'm so happy that we kind of dived into this. <laughs> me too. Me too. I, I it's something that has always. Um, I don't know. It's just always something that's been in the back of my head. Like I said, since uh, Sally and I wrote that book together, we actually do some math in the book and we call it out very explicitly about, you know, how much therapy services cost. And I know people out there in the past have actually pulled up that page and flagged it and shown it to administrators who are uh, hyper-focused on the technology and, and uh, being gatekeepers of the technology. And we said, see right here, look, that just you reviewing all the things, how much money do you get paid per hour? Like, and that's an ongoing thing. So can we have a different system where you're not the gatekeeper? Uh, that People have mentioned that to me over the years, that that particular page and that particular uh, section of the book has really helped change some people's minds about, yeah, right, I should really be thinking about that. It's a one-time cost. Versus, that's, that's $800 versus $10,000. Yeah, right? Right? So don't worry yeah. about that as much. Exactly. So Chris, who, who are we listening to as far as the interview today? Ah, so today is with Brandy Lee Wetland. And Brandy is someone who I met um, at ATIA back in the day. Um, she, uh, with a number of the people actually we've heard on the podcast, came to a pre-conference that I did with Beth Poss. And that's where I got to meet her for the first time. But then we've always, you know, stayed in touch ever since. And She's sort of big in Arizona and uh, does a lot of work with uh, students in Arizona and families in Arizona. And she talks about uh, this out and about program that she's a part of. And uh, it's just a great, great stories and great strategies that she gets to share. So Brandy, actually, there's a few names that I know from social media who, you know, share my posts and like my work. And Brandy is one of those. Um, And I I just really love her. She's quite passionate about AAC and that shines through. Um, So I'm so excited that we were able to bring her on the podcast today. Me too. Me too. Awesome. So if you guys haven't already joined our Facebook group, please go. That's where all the conversations are, are being had. No, it doesn't cost two ninety nine to get in. It's completely free. And um, we would love to have you in our, in our Facebook group because there's lots of amazing posts. We are growing such an amazing community of AAC enthusiasts. Um, and if you guys ever have questions, it's a perfect place to post because Obviously, Chris and I can respond to your questions, but uh, even better is that we have an entire group of people um, who can chime in and who often chime in before Chris and I get a chance to even, you know, see the posts. So um, the Facebook group, you can just search Talking With Tech and you can join our group. Um, So without further ado, let's head into Chris's interview with Brandy Lee Wetland. Well, welcome back to the Munchkin podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about Munchkin and all things board games. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding, everybody. I'm just kidding. This is Talking With Tech, and I'm here with Brandy Lee Wentland. How's it going, Brandy? It's going good. I'm bummed. I thought we were going to talk about Munchkin for an hour. <laughs> well, we could. We could. We could change this whole podcast up. We'll, we'll just uh, we'll play it on April 1st. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> now, seriously, Brandy, so who are you and what do you do? What 
I'm a speech language pathologist and I work in homes with families providing AAC evaluations, ongoing training and ongoing therapy. I work with the child's full team. So sometimes that means working with the family and helping them with carryover and implementation. Other times that means working with their therapy team or their school team to get everybody on board and make sure that we've got carryover in all locations. So wait, did you say you work as a private in private practice? Yeah, you know, I'm an independent contractor. And so that could look a little bit different depending on the client and their source of funding. But I do have my own company called We Speak AAC, and I contract out to a private practice called Therapy One. And I've also done some work with NAU and um, a variety of other places as well. I also provide some services to families directly. Gotcha. So you wear many different hats depending on who you're working with. I definitely do. (laughs) So, and you said the name of your company is? We Speak AAC. So do you find that the majority of what you do is AAC? Absolutely. I'd say 90 to probably 90 to 95% of the work I do is with AAC users and their support teams. Wow. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So, so one of the things that we are going to talk about today is about your style or your strategies for implementing and integrating AAC with people who um, come from different backgrounds or might have different, um, like people who work, who are BCBAs and who are not SLPs and how that all fits together. So what are some strategies you use? A lot of what I use is scaffolding. I like to look and see where people are at, where they're hitting a roadblock and help them overcome that. A lot of times I find it's fear. It's just, oh no, I have an AAC device. How do I do this? Where do I even get started? I like to help overcome that. With BCBAs, usually the roadblock we hit is research. They are very heavily, they heavily rely on research and the type of research really matters to them. So I find that if I'm willing to meet them in the middle with research and with what they're looking for, then we can usually find some common ground and build some bridges. And I find if they have 30 hours a week with our clients, we really wanna make sure that we're on board and they can help us with some of that implementation. Oh, well, that makes so much sense. I mean, the people that are spending that much time with a student, you want to make sure that they um, are using, that everyone involved is using the same integrated approach, right? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a type of research that, that intrigues BCBAs, or that's been your experience. What, what do you mean by that? You know, they want to make sure that it's been heavily researched and that it's, it's a thorough research study. And so if it's, a, if it's a single subject design and there's only a one-off case study, a lot of times they're not going to see it as valid as other forms of research. And so I, I send them the research that I have, that I believe in, and then if they come back at, at it and say, you know, this is just not something that, that I'm able to use, then I'll go and I'll do a little more research or I'll show them where they can go find that research themselves. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm very, I scrutinize the research just as much as anyone else. I think that if I saw kind of a one-off research study, that's not going to convince me that this is a, a, an approach that I should take or a strategy that I should, that I should implement. It has to be replicated and uh, something that I've seen over and over again. And when I see that whole body of evidence, then it's a little bit harder to ignore, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of the areas we've found some common ground are on video modeling, on functional language, on motivating, utilizing AAC and motivating activities. These are all things that are important to us as SLPs. And believe it or not, it's important to BCBAs as well. 
And so I find that if I can focus on those areas instead of the areas we disagree, then we tend to have more productive conversations. That sounds like a good advice for anybody in any, I mean, anyone listening to this who is uh, not even speaking about AAC, right? You find the common ground and you work from there as opposed to highlighting the differences and then being angry at each other. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. One of the other tactics I use is I ask a lot of questions and I learn from them. I found that I've learned so much from other disciplines. You know, OTs have taught me a lot about sensory regulation and I'm able to incorporate that into my therapy sessions and even into AAC evaluations. BCBAs have taught me actually a lot about motivating activities. I don't know if you know, but they have a reinforcement matrix that they follow by. And they actually look at all the different areas that are important to a child. What, you know, what toys do they like? What foods do they like? What kind of activities do they like? What sports or music are they into? And they analyze all of this in this matrix. And then they, they uh, target their activities with those clients around those motivating activities. So when I found out they had this for every single one of their clients, I said, hey, can I get a copy of that? And I was able to actually get a copy of the reinforcement matrix and start filling it out with families myself. That's awesome. So, you know, even kids who don't use AAC, this is a strategy that I certainly have used in the past and have uh, encouraged teams to use, like a, an interest survey is what it sounds yes. like, right? Like, what, yep. what are you interested in? What is your family interested in? What is a student interested in? It sounds something very similar. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And by sharing that with them and talking with them, they're able to give something to me. And so they realize that this is a give and take conversation, not just me coming in to tell them what to do. And that I find that that facilitates better conversation between the two of us, where it's about team building. Why do we each deserve a seat at the table instead of I'm the only one that deserves to be here? Oh, I just love that so much. I mean, it's mutual respect, right? of these two different disciplines just working together for the benefit of everybody. Oh, that's great. So let me ask, switching gears just a little bit, um, I know that you have been working in the field for a little bit and you do some mentoring? I do. Um, I really like working with SLPs who are passionate about AAC but don't know where to get started. And I say SLPs, but that also means SLPAs. Sometimes that means teachers and parents. So whoever it is, if they're on their AAC journey and they're just not sure where to get started, what conferences to go to, what blogs to read, or, or where to get a free app so that they can try it out themselves, I'm all about helping people that are on a quest for more knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, that's why this podcast exists, right? Is to spread the word to as many people as possible. And so people hit here, uh, well, hopefully the right words, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, so should you do that in any sort of official capacity, the mentoring, or is it just in, you know, like uh, as, I, as I collaborate with people? I've done it in a few different ways. Um, I first started off providing workshops. When I was on my AAC journey, I took notes on all the things I was learning from all the professionals in the field, threw them into a PowerPoint for myself. And as I got about halfway through, I realized, hey, other people might want to use this. So as people were asking me where I got my information, I started sharing my PowerPoint with them. And one SLP said, you really have enough for this. You really should think about doing this in a more professional capacity. So I brought it back to my alma mater, Chico State, and said, you know, if I had these, these questions, if I ha had this journey that I needed to be on, then I think other people may too. So how about I share it with the people that are graduating from the same program I did? From that, it grew into a workshop that I, it started off as a two-hour workshop, turned into a six-hour workshop, and I started providing it for school districts and private practices and 
parents and mixed audiences even. I, I've done that a few times where we had parents, ECBAs, music therapists, OTs, PTs, everybody all in the room collaborating. And it just grew. From that, I've had SLPs and SLPAs reach out to me and say, hey, would you be willing to supervise me or mentor me? Or um, I just recently supervised a grad student for her first clinical rotation and helping her get um, all, all the, the juicy details that she was looking to, to soak in. She's such a sponge and so much fun to mentor. So I've just found different ways where it just kind of grew grassroots. People saying, hey, I, I heard you have this workshop or I heard you help this person over here. Could you help me? Through that, I've had a few BCBAs that are part of that too. They call me and ask me for more research. They ask me for implementation ideas. They say, hey, why doesn't this kid on my caseload have an AAC device? <laughs> wow, this is awesome. A BCBA recommending AAC. That's great. That's that is awesome. That is awesome. So it's something we talk about on this podcast is we call it the obligated to share challenge or leading with sharing. And it sounds like you took that by the that bull by the horns and said, I'm gonna do that. And then it turned into you you reaching out to the to the university turned into a whole lot of business for you and helping a whole lot of people. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. I found that that is where my passion really lies, and that's where I love the training that I'm able to provide after someone gets a device, because I can go train the whole team, figure out where everyone's at, and just help them get to the next step on their journey. So, so let me ask you, what are some of the you know, without giving the entire presentation here, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the the topics that you you talk about when you well, you said this 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 presentation you put together? What are some of the things you share? I definitely share your Powtoons video on aided language stimulation. That's definitely one of the top things that I present. And I share with everyone that this is an important thing to do to show at an IEP meeting, to get everybody on board and help everyone in the room, no matter what discipline they come back, come from, to realize we're all part of this child's team. We're all communication partners. So I like to really start with that fairly early on in the presentations, just to get everyone to realize that no one um, has a bigger seat at the table here. We're all communication partners. And then I like to get into core words and implementation and how to prevent device abandonment. I like to talk a lot about um, people, it's, uh, individuals that have um, prompt dependency, talk about why they have that prompt dependency, how we can help overcome some of that prompt dependency and give them just some ideas on what they can do tomorrow. I find that when you're at a workshop, you can take in a lot of theory, but you need to know what can I do tomorrow? What feels doable? So do a lot of fun activities and help them see how things they see every day. Things I take videos off of Facebook that they might see that are, have nothing to do with our field and say, how would you use this? This popped up on your Facebook feed, it made you laugh. Now, how would you use this for AAC implementation? How could you use it in your classroom? Whether you're a teacher, an SLP, or PT, each one of you, tell me, how could you use this? And let's do it hands-on in the workshop so that tomorrow you'll feel more confident doing it instead of just learning this in theory. I love that so much. I mean, just today I was in a session, a professional development workshop, and uh, some of the, they were preschool teachers had pulled me aside and they were chatting with me on the side and they were saying, you know, watching videos with kids, uh, our administrators are really discouraging that. Okay. She goes, but I really like watching videos with kids, like uh, sitting with them. We're watching a video together. We pull something down. They're interested. I'm interested. It's not about the video. It's so much about the togetherness and the strategies you use, just like you would with a book, just like you would with um, a board game, or just like you do any, any other activity. It's about this togetherness. And I was like, yeah, I, I, 
I totally feel that. So the idea that you're you're just pulling anything off the web, off of Facebook, because that's real life, right? Parents are scrolling through Facebook and say, hey, how could you use that? And then just turning that so that it demystifies AAC. It's not something you have to go to this weird website that no one's ever heard of and do this strategy that no one's ever heard of. You're just making it real. I just love that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you mentioned something about about it being um, togetherness. And I think the reason why we see a lot of fear with the AC is the user has this form of communication and they possess it. And when they walk away, the, the communication partner doesn't have it, mm-hmm. right? And so what I found is if you can help people understand there are ways to get access to that same communication system, then there's less fear because they have an opportunity to practice in the dark. They have an opportunity to practice on their own. So showing them things like chat editor and the past software and light tech supports and even contacting vendors and saying, hey, I'm an SLP. Would I, would I be able to get a copy of this app? You know, finding those different ways to get access to the communication so that they're not only communicating with that student in the 20 minutes or hour that they have that student in front of them. And the more they practice, the more comfortable they feel. And like you said, it's not just a thing that you're doing for that isolated amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. I know I know that is, a, I think it's a strategy I've shared on the podcast before, but when I was learning a particular app, I went and sat with my kids while they were, while one sibling was waiting for another to finish sports or whatever, we sat, I was like, all right, let's practice, you know, and we practiced together. We made it a fun, like you said, together thing that we were just doing together. But then what that really helped me when I went back in to work with the actual kids who are using it, I knew where the words were, you know, and I was able to be a more effective communication partner. Exactly. Cool. So let me ask you, you mentioned, um, uh, prompt dependency and you said there's strategies for prompt dependency. Just give me a quick example of what's a strategy would you use to prevent someone becoming prompt dependent? Well, I kind of flipped the script. Instead of doing everything that is all about compliance and all about answering right questions, right, right, answering questions with the right answers, I op- ask open-ended questions. I personally like to work a lot on on refusal and protest. How about you tell me, leave me alone, go away. If we can work on some of those things, then they're not so prompt dependent. Then you equip them to have the power where they're in charge instead of me being in charge, right? And so as soon as I can flip that script and find some way to give them power, then we start seeing some of that prompt dependency fade. And the less I give them those closed-ended questions and more of those open-ended options, they start to realize, I have a voice and my voice matters to you. And then we need to give them more communication partners where the same is true. Because if I'm the only person that says your voice matters to me, then I'm the only one they're using it with. And honestly, I don't want a client that only uses their voice with me. I want them using it in the community with their parents, with their peers. I want them using it with everyone, not just people that they're providing that are providing therapy with them. Yeah, you know, I find that as a as a stark reality is that if only one person or if a few people are do, being the effective communication partners, the kids pick up on that really quickly. So, oh, there's Mr. Chris, and Mr. Chris always uses his the AAC with me, so I'll use the AAC with him. Where Miss So and So comes by, or Mr. So and So comes by, and he doesn't know how to use this thing at all, so I'm not going to use it either. And therefore, if you increase the number of communication partners who know and are using the 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 tools, there's just more, uh, the less, there's less code switching that the student has to do, and there's more opportunities to learn language. Absolutely. You know, uh, an example I like to share with a lot of people is I had a friend that took Japanese when she was in high school. She took three years of it. 
fully fluent. She went and studied abroad. And three months in, I said, so have you met any friends? Have you talked with anybody? And she said, no. Why? She said, I'm afraid. I said, but you're fluent. She said, but I'm afraid. You know, and so we really need to create an a, a situation where people feel comfortable using their AAC device. We also have to make sure that they're immersed. She was immersed, but she wasn't comfortable. In other scenarios, you know, just because I know a few words in Spanish doesn't mean I'm going to say them to you. You're not speaking Spanish to me. So why would I speak Spanish to you? So if you're not speaking AAC to me, I'm not going to speak AAC to you. So we really need to keep that in mind with our clients that we're immersing them with everyone utilizing AAC using the same language we want them to use with us. We're going to use it with them. And we also need to make it a safe space where they feel comfortable. Their, their fight or flight is not being activated. They're not feeling like they're on the spot. I'm stealing that one, Brandy. I have not used that as an analogy. I definitely used the second language analogy before, but that whole point that you made about someone feeling comfortable and how true is that, right? I mean, uh, many people have learned a foreign language or had studied a foreign language for a number of years and then it could even be fluent in their Spanish class, right? But then have that anxiety about you actually using it in, that, in a country that speaks Spanish or like you said, Japanese. That totally makes sense. There's a whole emotional comfort level and confidence level that that uh, that is going to be different for everybody, uh, but but it is it does exist for everybody. Oh man, that's such a great that's such a great analogy. Thanks. So let me shift gears and ask you again. So a different question, Brandy is. Sometimes I see on Facebook, you know, we follow each other on Facebook and have known each other for years. Maybe here at the end, I'll explain the whole Munchkin thing to, to everyone who's listening. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I see you post about is this thing called Out and About. And I'm not really yeah. sure what that is or what, what is that a program or is that an activity or an event? What, what is that? Caroline Musselwhite and Deanna Wagner started this about 20 years ago. They saw a need for AAC users to find a safe place where they can meet other friends that utilize similar modes of communication. They also thought that it would be really important for their communication partners to have a safe place to learn how to model and how to implement aided language stimulation. So they figured if we can get them out in the community instead of in a therapy room where they can get together and make those friendships and continue to grow those friendships and their family members can do the same and find other people that they can rely on and support and, and have some support and have an SLP that's willing to be there to help guide that and, and focus on these are some of the words we can work on, some of the greetings, some of the phrases. And this in this activity, there's these are some of the things we can be modeling and showing them what that looks like. Then we might see less isolation for our AAC users that they all face. A lot of them are facing mental health issues because of depression and isolation. We might see less of that and we might see more of these friendships grow and more use of AAC. In addition to that, we're creating community awareness. So these, this small group that started 20 years ago is now cropping up all over the world. Uh, Caroline and Deanna have opened it up. It's, 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 it's not something that's licensed or proprietary. They want to see it grow. They want to see it happen in other places as long as everybody is following the same initial intent that, that this was initially started on. So when I moved to Arizona and I met Caroline and Deanna and started working with them and attending their events, I said, hey, there's a huge need in the East Valley here. Is there any way we could start something out there? Caroline said, Brandy, you're in Nashville. <laughs> you really got to start one. So I went to Therapy One. They said, we'd be happy to support you in that and started about two and a half years ago. 
And we have AAC users of all ages. We have small children, we have adults. We all get together and just have a great time once a month, uh, either ordering food at a restaurant or going to a splash pad and using light tech or whatever it takes. So is your role, um, I'm going to imagine you're the speech therapist that guides it, but are you then also uh, like an organizer and say, here's when the next event is happening? Is there like a, a Facebook group? How do, how do people coordinate it? Yeah, we have a Facebook group that um, consists of the three central uh, Phoenix area uh, out and about groups. We have one in Central Phoenix, one in the West Valley. The West Valley is led by Caroline Musselwhite. Central Valley is led by Deanna Wagner. And I run our, our facilitator East Valley group. And that's what that Facebook group is. We also have a separate Facebook group for Tucson that was started by a parent and an SLPA that is also a vendor for one of the companies has helped support her get that group going. She has a separate Facebook group. And just recently, our last intern that we had out here this summer is just started a Facebook group for Chico State, and the university is going to be starting an out and about group in California. Gotcha. Do you have any idea how many exist around the country? I mean, it sounds like a great thing. <laughs> we were just discussing this the last time we got together. We said we'd like to know how many out and about groups there are and where they're at. So if anybody knows, if anybody is leading a group, please message me or Caroline or Deanna and let us know that you're running a group and where you're at. We'd like to get some kind of a, a number on, on who's out there and, and get in touch with you as well and hear some of your success stories. So if you are interested, if someone's listening right now and is like, well, okay, one, I, I, I run one. So, okay, the contact, uh, like you said, but then this, the second piece is I'm sure there might be people listening going, hmm, maybe I could be the person that starts that in my neck of the woods. How would they get started? Caroline Musselwhite has a Teachers Pay Teachers page, and on there, her free resource is an out-and-about guide. So that is usually what she says she'd like you to start first is read that out and about guide, see if you agree with the general mission plan, and, and it'll give you plenty of resources on how to get started. And then contact one of us, me, Caroline, or Deanna, find us on Facebook, and reach out to us and say, hey, I'd like to start a group, and we'll, we'll give you any support that we can. And you can, you can also email us or, or join our Facebook group so you can kind of watch and see how we're leading our group to get some ideas from there as well. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Well, I, well, I certainly hope a listener, if you're interested, that you'll reach out and start to create something like this in your neck of the woods because uh, it's, it's on us to do it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing what happens from these groups, um, both professionally and for the friendships that you'll get to see develop. But, you know, it leads to, to ongoing therapy and, you know, as far as a business reason to do it. And then it also leads to some awesome rewarding things and seeing people utilize their device for the first time in a meaningful, connective way, instead of just like we talked about with that prompt dependency. Once they see someone that's their same age using a device and getting to talk with them as a friend is so powerful. Oh yeah, that's awesome, that's awesome. All right, so Brandy, I like to end the interview with a kind of a question, a standard question that I ask is, what's floating your boat recently? What is, what are you thinking about? What are you questing after? What's got you curious in the realm of AAC? You know, after doing these mixed workshops, it's really drawn me to wanting to do more about collaborating with teams and getting teams on the same page. I've seen plenty of situations where SLPs and BCVAs have got their backs up and they're, they're, they're not working together for the benefit of the client. 
And I really want to get to a place where we can find more opportunities for all of us to sit in the same room instead of having a continuing ed workshop where it's all SLPs in the room. I really want to get everybody, all the communication partners together and start talking some more about why do we all deserve a seat at the table? How can we help one another? I did it at a recent workshop and it was so powerful. I hadn't realized we had music therapists in the audience and I had been talking to the OTs and the PTs and the teachers and we're all talking about how, how we can all help the client and a music therapist raised her hand and said, hey, what about us? <laughs> you know, and that really was really resonated with me. You know, karaoke has been a big thing lately. And absolutely, that's something at this particular school that we can start implementing where they can be a part of AAC as well. So I want to find more ways to get us all together and, and collaborating. And I'm not quite sure what that will look like or how that will happen, but I'm really interested in, in discovering that and digging into that. Well, it sounds like a natural fit without and about, right? Come to one of these events and all these different people from different perspectives can see how, how it can work. Absolutely. We've had, we've had that. We've had a few teachers and a, and a few parents and um, we've had PT, OT, speech come. I've said, you know, come, be a fly on the wall until you feel comfortable to join and, be, and participate. That's awesome. So now, Brandy, we have to, well, let, let me, before we talk about Munchkin, let me, uh, <laughs> and explain that to people. Um, <laughs> what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, probably through email. Um, I have a lot of people reach me that way. So it's brandywentland at gmail.com. You can also take a look at my website, wespeakaac.com or find me on Facebook, AAC Tidbits and Tools. All right. Fantastic. So, so now let's explain to everybody. So reach out to Brandy. Um, so let's, every, let's explain to everybody the munchkin thing. So you and I have known each other since ATIA. I don't remember what year it was. Do you remember 2015, 16, 17? I don't know. About three years. Maybe three years ago. Um, and so we met at ATIA. And then since then, um, we've had conversations about all sorts of stuff, but one of them was that you are a board game fan. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, and so am I, right? And um, so when we were gonna go to a few, uh, so uh, the next ATIA, or maybe it was two ATIAs later, we were corresponding via Facebook Messenger. I was like, well, should we play a game? Should we bring something and play something together? And so we landed on Munchkin. If no one's ever played Munchkin, it's a great little board game to play. And, uh, and so we brought it to ATIA and a bunch of us, it was you and me and Sean Pearson was there, who's been on the podcast before. Um, we introduced it to Beth Poss, who's a, a friend of mine who had never played it before. Uh, was anyone else playing? Remind me. I think Lucas was present, but maybe not playing. <laughs> oh, that's right. Right. Lucas was there for a little bit. Yeah, that's great. And we had a blast. We had a total blast playing Munchkin together. I think cards ended up in the air at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think when Beth won, she threw the cards up in the air. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, Brandy, thank you again for coming on and for playing Munchkin with me. Thank you for coming on and, and participating in this interview. Uh, and, and really, keep up the good work. We just love, I just love seeing all the stuff that you're doing uh, out in Arizona. Thank you so much.
Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.